James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This morning, uh, I preached out of Psalm 40, a psalm which moved me and moved many today, but it was a place where David said, uh, or whoever the psalmist was there, that God dug him new ears, and he was confessing that he had a head that was a granite block, and God had to literally excavate his head so he could hear his voice. And uh, while we were singing tonight, just every everything just drew you right to Christ. And if you love Him, you have to be moved moved by that. Thank you. Before I preach this morning, this is what I said to Grace Church. I said I want you to pray for our friends at Sonship in Brooklyn. Pray and give thanks to God for them, for their extraordinary, and I mean extraordinary, generosity. Thank you. I don't know how you guys do it, how the Lord blesses you and you provide for us, but thank you. I don't know what's happening when you ride a Harley and lift weights, you should not cry. Let's read our text tonight, James chapter 4. I'm interested in the first six verses. I'm going to talk about the dissatisfied life, the cause of a dissatisfied life. And I suspect that there is someone here tonight whom God wants to especially speak to because you are struggling in life. You are looking for something and not finding it. And... uh, All that we sang about tonight is really the answer. It's in Jesus Christ. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God 
opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'll give you the essence of the message up front. That James will tell us that a dissatisfied life is rooted in the pursuit of satisfying your desires, good or bad, but satisfying your desires apart from the will of God. And he only has one answer for a dissatisfied life. God gives more grace. It is only grace that can bring you to satisfaction. I want you to think for a moment, when was the last time that you found yourself in a battle with someone? It's not that they were fighting against you, that may have been true, but you in your spirit, you were fighting against them. You were in a struggle to get what you wanted in life. They were an obstacle to what you wanted in life. Maybe it was your your spouse, your husband, your wife. Maybe for a child, it was their parent. For a parent, maybe their children or your in-laws or your neighbor or maybe your church member, maybe your pastor, an elder. But you were struggling. You wanted something and this individual seemed to be in the way of your happiness, and so you battled them. This is what James is talking about, and he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the Christian church, and he's asking them to think about what was going on, what is going on in your heart. Yes, you have the the facts of the outside struggle, But really, what's going on in your heart that makes you contentious? What is rooted there that brings you to such discontent in life? If you read through James, James would have told us in chapter 3 that there's two kinds of wisdom out there. And that if you follow the wisdom of the world, eventually it ends in contention and strife and all kinds of ungodliness. But if you follow the wisdom of God, he says it always ends in righteousness and in an atmosphere of peace. Now you can't help it if somebody's fighting against you. But James is asking, what about the spirit that you have? These struggles, he says, that are among you, That are rooted, he says, in the struggles that are within you. Notice the difference in language. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? He's telling them that what's going on in your outward life is simply a reflection of the struggle that's going on in your inward life. He wants believers to face the reality of a dissatisfied life. If you find yourself living in contention with people, fighting and arguing, there's something going on in your heart that only God can bring peace to. Only the grace of God can change. It's a reality. It's seen in our unresolved personal conflicts. Wars 
and fights among you. And James doesn't water down his language at all. He picks language that comes right out of the battlefield. Words that would describe perhaps even an armed conflict. This is serious stuff going on among Christians. They are in a battle. And this is true. Some churches are like that. It's, it's a battle. You don't even want to go to church because there's going to be a fight, an argument over some little thing. Some homes are like that. Men don't want to go home because of contention. Women are happy when their husbands don't come home because it only brings contention. And yet many of them are Christians. They say we love Jesus and yet they've got the spirit of fighting. There's this external conflict. I think of the story of Jacob in the Bible, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament which is a story of conflict and struggle. If you know his story, he began to fight even in his mother's womb. There's wrestling as to who's going to be the first baby that, 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 that comes out of the, the, the womb. And his brother comes out first and he's holding on to his heel because he wants to be first. And that's the picture of his life. He's fighting with his brother. He's fighting with his father. He's fighting with his father-in-law. It is a story of conflict. Until one night, he falls asleep at a place called Peniel. And there at Peniel, he meets what we call a theophany or a Christophany. God or a pre-appearance of Christ in human flesh. And a wrestling match takes place. And Jacob seems to be winning because that's his life. He can wrestle anybody, even God. And then this theophany touches his hip. And he surrenders. And he walks away with a limp for the rest of his life, remembering that he had been defeated by God. And when he was defeated by God, his struggles with people ended in life. He was no longer the man who lived in conflict. James says, where do these come from? These wars and battles that are among you. But he answers his own question. He says they, they, they come from the unresolved internal conflicts. He says your, your passions are at war. There is this battleground in your own soul, this battleground in your members. Passions. We get our English word hedonistic from this Greek word, hedonai. A hedonist is somebody who simply lives for self-indulgence, for self-pleasure. Somebody who has no control over natural appetites. Whatever I can do to satisfy my longing, I will do it. I'm a hedonist. Pleasure is my goal. I find it interesting that John Piper turns that upside down in his book, called Christian Hedonism. Any of you ever read that? I challenge you to read it. 
in his book Christian Hedonism, he says that it actually is legitimate for, for us to pursue pleasure. What is illegitimate is where we seek that pleasure. He says that a Christian hedonist is one who continually seeks to find pleasure in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is where we satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. But he's not talking about that here. He's talking about pagan, unrestrained, ungodly pursuit of pleasure. It may simply be the natural appetites that we have that are satisfied without any bounds. It's good to want sex. There's nothing wrong with that. It's hedonistic to satisfy that desire outside of a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong, covenant marriage relationship. It's, it's good. It's proper. To seek pleasure in food. I love to eat. I look forward to Geno's tonight. (laughs) But it's hedonistic to be a glutton. It's hedonistic to make food my God. To make food my peace. To make food my purest pleasure in life. Instead of food simply being a gift from God for which we give him thanks Understanding that he is always our deepest and greatest pleasure. He says you have passions going on within you. And we all do. We have desires. Many of them are good desires that we think about satisfying in wrong ways. Some of them are just pure evil desires. But if you're a believer and the spirit of God is living in you, as he says later in this text, the spirit of God is jealous over you. There's this conflict going within when you are seeking to find pleasure in life apart from a relationship with God, then you have this battle within and this battle within is what creates the battle without. You're having a problem getting along with your wife or husband. You're having a problem living with bitterness or resentment. You find yourself bursting and, and, uh, and at, at the smallest thing. Sit down before God and look at your own heart. What is this desire that you have that you see your spouse or your friend or your neighbor as a threat to, as standing in the way of it? That's the reality. It is seen outwardly because it's a reality inwardly. But he talks about the roots of a dissatisfied life. In verses 2 and 3, he says, you desire a different word, not the word for hedonism. It's a word that actually in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean bad desire, though normally this word is translated as lust, which is desire being satisfied in the wrong way. He says, you desire, and he's not saying you desire something bad. You just desire something. You need it. You want it. You've convinced yourself, I can't be happy without this. You desire and you do not have. 
And you see people that are in the way of your getting that desire. So he says, and he uses extreme language, you murder. Of course, we understand from the teaching of Jesus that murder, the actual act of murder, is inclusive of everything that begins with anger, that begins with demeaning speech. You know, Jesus said, if, if you call your brother a fool, if you diminish his value as a human being, you violated the commandment, thou shalt not kill. So what James is saying is, you will go to any extreme. Your desires are so compelling, and the opposition is so real, that you will go to any extreme, yes, even murder, and we know people do do that. You will go to any extreme to get your desires satisfied. This dissatisfaction, he says, is rooted in your inability to satisfy your own life. You have desires, but you can't get them fulfilled, and so... You are willing to do whatever is necessary to get what you want in life. And when you get it, you murder. You're still dissatisfied. Because there's nothing out there in this world. There's nothing you can get. There's nothing you can do. There's no obstacle you can remove that can bring you to that place where you can finally say, I'm at rest. I'm at peace. St. Augustine said it so well, and you've heard it before, but hear it again and remember it. He said, you, thou hast made us for thyself. And our souls will never be at rest until they rest in thee. It's impossible. I don't care how much of a smiley face you have. How much you can put on airs of being content and happy in life and having life under control. If you are not resting in Jesus when you put your head on your pillow at night, there is still a deep longing, a deep dissatisfaction because God has made it to be so that you will never find rest until you rest in him. We've remained dissatisfied as Christians, James says, because we reject God's ability to satisfy one's life. You ask, or you desire, you don't have. You pray. You don't have, but you don't pray. You pray, but you pray with the wrong motives. The evidence of our rejection of God and of our self-indulgence is most clearly seen in our prayer life. You do not ask. You're searching everywhere. You're looking everywhere. You're trying everything. And God says, wait a minute. 
I gave my son to redeem you. To redeem you from a life of dissatisfaction. A life of spiritual hunger. A life of spiritual thirst. And I redeemed you so that you could come to Christ and eat the bread of life and drink the living water. I redeemed you so that you could know the one who said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Ask, he says, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be open. God says, I'm a good father. If you ask me for a fish, I'm not going to give you a stone. I want your happiness and your satisfaction more than you do. Ask. But James tells us, you don't have, but you don't ask. You don't go to God. Now, maybe there are reasons for that. Maybe you've already told yourself that what you know God wants to give you, you don't believe is the answer. So you don't have faith in his word and his promises. So you don't ask him. Or maybe you just know it's outright wrong. It's just plain wrong. You know that that's not what God wants for you. So you live with unsatisfied desires. You do not ask. I find with people who who often think that other people are their solution to their problems in life. I find that rarely do they spend time seeking God. One of my questions I ask people when they call me, they have a need. They think I'm the solution for that need. And maybe I could help them with that need. But my first question is, have you prayed about it? You know, have you sought God before you sought John? Have you made John your God, your means to the resolution of your, your desire instead of God? Have you prayed about it and sought God's will for this? Now, many times our problem of dissatisfaction is we reject God's promises of what he says he will do. And so we don't pray. But then he says something interesting and powerful. When I do pray, when you do pray, you pray selfishly. You ask Wrongly, he says, to spend it on your passions. Again, that word hedonism. And so you do pray, but James is going to talk about bad prayer. Matter of fact, the word means more than bad. It's evil prayer. You ask wrongly. You want to consume it upon your lust. The big question in prayer is always this when I'm coming before God. Why do I want what I want? 
James says you ask with the wrong motive. Why do you want what you want? You say, I want it because this is what will make me happy. That's the wrong motive. You say, I want it because in it, I believe I can most glorify God. And if God doesn't give it to me, it will not change my satisfaction, my pleasure that I find in God. Why do I want what I want? We have prayer meeting, as you do once a week. And it's always interesting to hear what people pray for. I would say that much of the prayer that I hear is prayer of hedonism. It's not the outright ugly hedonism. It's acceptable hedonism. You know, they want good things to make their life easier or to make someone else's life easier. But it has nothing to do with the glory of God. It has nothing to do with the purposes of God in in, in this life. And rarely do you hear someone pray, God, you know, I'm suffering with cancer. And, you know, I I, want to be delivered. I, I claim deliverance, even some would say. Rarely do they say, God, teach me through this. And mold me more into the likeness of Christ. I remember reading John Piper's little article on thank God for cancer when he first struggled with prostate cancer. And he just went through all of the reasons why he was thankful for the suffering and the inconvenience that he had to go through because of what it taught him about himself and how it brought him in a deeper dependence upon God. And then David Powelson, uh, a great Christian author and counselor uh, from Westminster Seminary, he read that article at the time that he was going through the same kind of cancer and he edited it with John's permission and added his own lessons that he learned. It wasn't praying, God, I cannot be happy unless you deliver me from this. It was, God, I have you. I have the best of this world and the world to come. I have life in Jesus Christ. Nothing's better than that. So teach me if this is what you have for me. If this is my lot in life for today and tomorrow and maybe for the rest of my life. Teach me. But much of our prayer is just bad. Sometimes we reject God outrightly simply by not asking him for what we need. But other times we reject him by asking him with motives that dishonor his purposes in our life. I mean, Jesus taught us a simple prayer. This is how you pray. And you probably all know it. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, not a big bank account, not a full refrigerator, not the certainty that I have enough for tomorrow. Just take care of me today. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. I don't want, I don't want to fall into sin. Deliver us from that evil one. I don't want Satan to get a foothold in my life. It's simple. It's for your glory, my life. But then he gets more severe. He not only exposes how we reject God by our lack of prayer or by our prayer with bad motives. He talks about spiritual adultery. You adulterers and adulteresses. Think about it. Not only in your desire to get what you want in life do you trample over people and have conflict with people. But on the other hand, sometimes in order to get your hedonistic desires satisfied, you will make friends with the world. You think they look like they're happy. They seem to have it made. They don't have the worries that I do. Look at the fun they're having. I know a couple sad horror stories of young people that have gotten married and husbands that have found out that, you know, their wives felt like they got married too young. And they never really had a life. They never really had fun. And so they got out there in the work world and started going to some office parties and, and, and they're having fun, Christians. And one day the husbands come home and they're gone. I don't want to be married anymore. I, I need to live my life. We make friends with the world. We believe the lie. That someone, that anyone is truly at peace and happy apart from Jesus Christ. There is no one on planet earth. I don't care what they tell me. Somebody tells me, I'm happy. I don't believe in God. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe all that Jesus stuff. My life is perfect. And I don't have a problem looking them in the eye and say, I don't believe you. (laughs) Praise God. Because I know God made you. And if you're in rebellion against God, your soul will never find rest until it rests in him and what he provides in Jesus Christ. It's really an unusual reversal of desire that takes place when I, as a Christian... Abandon God to try to find some worldly way to meet this emptiness in my soul. The God who loves me. The God who gave his son to die for me. The God who waits and says, I have everything you need to make you happy. And I choose to go after a false lover. I think of men who, I mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I have little, little sympathy 
really, for those men who struggle with pornography. I pray for you. But I think some serious repentance and love of Jesus will deliver you from all those false loves. So I don't, I don't have any patience with, you know, I'm addicted. Uh, come to Jesus Christ. He'll change you. But I think of men who sit at a computer at night engaging false lovers while a woman whom they've made pledges to, made vows to, a woman who loves them, lies in bed, a woman who wants to be their wife and wants to satisfy them. And here are men giving their hearts to false lovers. Well, this is what James is saying to Christians who seek any other solution to their happiness in life apart from Jesus Christ. He says, you're lying in bed with the wrong lover. There's only one. One that you've committed your life to. One who loves you, who's committed his life to you. God says, I am here always for your happiness. And I will make sure that nothing will ever separate you from my love. And he expects the return from me. That I reciprocate. That I pursue him, that I want him, that I love him, that I enjoy him, that I delight in him, that I want to experience him more, that I really believe that he is the chief love of my life. God is a jealous lover. If you look with me in verse 5. This is a very difficult verse to translate. The ESV says, Or or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And the ESV takes it that God is earnestly trying to win over always your human spirit. And that's a legitimate way. I mean, that's a good thought. He is. He is a jealous lover who never gives up. But I like other translations of it that that put it in such a way that spirit is actually the subject of the sentence. And it's the spirit who is jealously yearning over us. It's the spirit who yearns to have us. That he is a jealous lover. What James is saying, and I, I, I do believe that is the better translation, but either way it's saying something similar. God is relentless in his love for you. Even when we have pursued adultery, 
Even when we have forsaken Him. Even when our prayers have been wrong. Even when we have not prayed. And we've gone after the world and we have tried like Solomon to find happiness in everything under the sun. Even when we've done that, if you belong to Jesus Christ, He is a lover that will not ever, ever give up on you. And that is why you'll never be happy running from Him. Praise God. Because He's always pursuing you. Always pursuing you. These are some hard words that James brings. He exposes us to the deep ugliness of our hearts. My problem is really not you. My problem is what's going on in my own heart, my own desires that are unsatisfied, and I'm looking in the wrong place. My problem is that I'm an adulterer, that I'm, even though I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, my heart is really saying there is something, someone else out there who can really give me what I'm longing for. There's a problem with my heart. I'm an adulterer, James says. But then verse 6 is like the music that we sang tonight. It just, it grabs me. Because what do you do with someone who's betrayed you? What do you do with someone who is laid in bed with a false lover? Who's been disloyal to their vows to you? Does God divorce his people? Does God divorce you? Now James says, but he gives more grace. No matter where you are tonight, no matter what you've done, no matter how ugly the depths of your heart are, he gives more grace. All he wants is humility, repentance, and renewed faith. And you come home. God takes you back. He doesn't throw it in your face. He doesn't keep reminding you of your failure, of your betrayal, of your adultery. He just gives more grace, more grace, more grace. And that's why we should love him. Let's pray together tonight with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. God speaking to your heart, your heart, what's going on deep inside you tonight, that unrest, that dissatisfaction in life. It's so easy to believe the lie. Our hearts are so deceitful and desperately wicked. It's so easy to believe the lie. That God can't really do what he promised. 
and that there's someone, something, some place out there that can give me what I'm longing for. And God still keeps coming after you and says, but I'm the one who loves you. And I'm the one who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Just humble yourself. Repent. Believe my promise. Come to me and find rest to your soul. I wonder if there's someone tonight who would let me pray for them. Would say, God has this evening been speaking to me about what's going on in my life and my heart and I want prayer to to bathe in, to rejoice in, to delight in once again the love of my Savior Jesus Christ. Pray for me tonight. Could I do that just quietly? Amen. Thank you, sir. Pray for me. I want what God is offering me. Thank you. Amen. I want to know that love, that peace, that joy. I want to believe his promise and humble myself before him tonight. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Anyone else? Father, you are a good, good father. Jesus Christ, you are beautiful and wonderful. Thank you for giving your life to save us. Spirit of God, we're thankful that you live within us. And you yearn jealously after us. That you want us to love the triune God. Thank you for pursuing us. I pray for these men and women tonight. That they would humble themselves before you. That they would repent and believe the gospel, your promise, that in Jesus Christ is everything we need, both for this life and the life to come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.